Hello, I'm Wesley Griffiths. I'm a barrister here at 23S Chambers. I'm going to be giving a talk today on the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Act 2022. I should say this is going out by audio and video. The benefit to video, if you can call it a benefit, is that you get to see my face while I'm doing it. You won't be missing anything else. I'm not referring to any text on screen. I suspect most listening will have a rough idea of what the Act does. What it does is ring-fence certain debts in relation to commercial business tenancies uh, and makes provisions as to what can be done with them. There are three main topics I'll want to cover. These are firstly how to define the relevant rent, the protected rent that's covered by the Act. Secondly, what the restrictions are about what can be done with them, and that, that mostly will apply to the landlord, but not exclusively. Uh, and finally, to look at the arbitration scheme, which follows to which, of course, reference can be made by either party to determine how much of the rent actually has to be paid. The purpose of the Act, of course, being that uh, in certain circumstances, an arbitrator may be able to write off some of the protected debt. So I'll start by looking at the first of those things I mentioned, which is how we're defining the relevant debt that's protected. Uh, I'm going to go through the sections in the Act. Relevant sections for this purpose are really sections 1 to 6. Uh, and what 1 does is simply give an overview. So, for example, uh, a protected rent debt, it's stated that it's defined in sections 2 to 6, and the matter of relief from payment is defined as well. Section 2 is where we start getting into what is actually covered by the Act in terms of a debt. And what it does is it defines rent primarily. Uh, and so rent for this purpose, it's provided in section 2.1, is rent in relation to a business tenancy means an amount consisting of one or more of the following. A, an amount payable by the tenant to the landlord under the tenancy for possession and use of the premises comprised in the tenancy, i.e. what would usually be called rent. B, service charges. C, interest on any unpaid amounts falling within A or B. The section goes on to provide a definition of service charges, which means more or less what you'd expect a service charge to mean. This is at 2C. And there's further definition of insurance, which is included in the definition of service charge at subsection 3 of section 2. That's what's relevant there. It's important to note that it's rent in relation to a business tenancy, which is defined at subsection 5 of section 2 as being a tenancy to which part 2 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 applies. And so these measures are applicable to those tenancies and not to other tenancies. These provisions will in some circumstances avail guarantors, but I'll, I'll come back to those. The important part is section 3, which defines, starting at subsection 1, what a protected rent debt is. And subsection 1 says, a protected rent debt is a debt under a business tenancy consisting of unpaid protected rent, which is, of course, rather question-begging, so there, are, there is further provision. Um, the key one is 3.2. Rent due under the tenancy is protected rent if A the tenancy was adversely affected by coronavirus, which is dealt with in section 4, and b, the rent is attributable to a period of occupation by the tenant for or for a period within the protected period applying to the tenancy. That's dealt with at section 5. 
it's important to note that both of these requirements must be met. 2A, namely whether the tenancy was adversely affected by coronavirus, is a binary question. It either was or it wasn't. 2B is the provision that sets the temporal limitation on what counts as protected rent, namely only that rent that's attributable to a period of occupation as defined. There is some further provision dealing with specific circumstances. You'll see it at section 3.5, uh, what happens with rents partially attributable to a period during the protected period. Um, it says so much as can reasonably be attributed to the protected period counts as protected. Presumably this essentially means pro rata. And there's subsection 6 that specifies that if you've had a tenancy deposit, the landlord has had a tenancy deposit and applied some of that deposit towards the rent, uh, protected rent, uh, that, counts as a, that counts as protected rent. Uh, and so it's, it's not possible to get around the regulations by just applying the tenancy deposit. That's also made clear in the moratorium provisions that we'll come back to. So those, those two questions for it to be protected rent, adversely affected by coronavirus. Firstly, rent attributable to a relevant period of occupation. Secondly, let's have a look at section four. Uh, and it's provided straightforwardly by section 4.1. A business tenancy was adversely affected by coronavirus for the purposes of section 3.2a if for any relevant period the whole or part of the business carried on by the tenant at or from the premises comprised in the tenancy or b the whole or part of those premises was of a description subject to a closure requirement. Closure requirement is defined at subsection 2, it means what you'd expect it to mean. The relevant period is defined. It means more or less some period between 21st of March 2020 and in England 18th of July 2021, or in Wales 7th of August 2021. Not necessary to look too much into the relevant period beyond that, because as mentioned, this is a binary question. You just need to establish that there was some relevant period within those dates during which the relevant business was subject to the requirement. That's all you need to do for section four. If the business or premises was required to close at some point within those dates, it was adversely affected by coronavirus and you can move on. In relation then to section five, which is the important bit for determining the temporal scope of the protected rent, uh, of the period during which the rent is protected. There's a definition of protected period. It appears in subsection one of section five. Basically what it says is, it's the period beginning with 21st of March, 2020. There are different dates on which it can end. Firstly, in England, it's the 18th of July. In Wales, it's the 7th of August. In each case, 2021, unless in either case, it's earlier. Now, when would it be earlier? That's a question addressed by subsection two. And the circumstances in which it would be earlier would be if there was a date earlier than the 18th of July or the 7th of August for England and Wales respectively, on which 
the closure requirements stopped, and there was no further specific coronavirus restriction. And those are the words used in the Act, specific coronavirus restriction. You may wonder what that means. What it means is set out in subsection 3, which says specific coronavirus restriction means a restriction or requirement other than a closure requirement imposed by coronavirus regulations, which regulates any aspect of the way a business or a part of a business of any specified description was to be carried on, or the way any premises or any part of premises of a specified description were or was to be used. So it's any restriction other than a closure requirement which applied to a specific type of business. Consequently, it generally won't incorporate general restrictions that were applicable generally. Um, and subsection 4 goes on to provide specific exceptions, and these are requirements to display information. Um, and then there's the specific exception that I just mentioned, restrictions applying more generally than to specific descriptions of businesses or premises. Uh, and so that's how you determine the protected period. You may wonder, how do I find this out? Um, there are two aids that you can rely on. The first is the Commercial Rent Code of Practice following the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this is available on the government website. It was published on the 7th of April 2022. Most of it um, is simply a code of practice by the ministers to assist, although a bit of it counts as statutory guidance. In either case, the bit that may help is Annex A, which provides a timeline for certain industries as to when they were subject to restrictions and provides a useful timeline of when, when regulations took effect, what businesses were affected and so forth. Now, this won't always perfectly capture every business. It will probably be necessary to look at the regulations, at least in many cases, and ideally in every case. In order to do that easily, you may wish to have reference to the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Act 2022 guidance, which is guidance to arbitrators and approved arbitration bodies on the exercise of their functions in the Act, which was also published in April 2022. Now, Annex A of that document is a more detailed provision as to when relevant regulations came into effect, and it takes the form of listing all of the relevant statutory instruments and giving links to them. Uh, and so, having looked at Annex A and had some guidance there of the previous document I mentioned to, the Code of Practice, you may want to look for more detail in the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Act 2022. That's in cases in which there's some dispute over when the protected period ends. Of course, in many cases, there may not be. It may just be obvious. But this will depend on the exact kind of business involved. Uh, just to finish off this first part, then, the final definition that I'd refer to is Section 6, which defines the matter of relief from payment. This is basically defining the scope of what an arbitration can relate to. Uh, and it means at subsection 1, references to the matter of relief from payment of a protected rent debt are to all issues relating to the questions A, whether there is a protected rent debt of any amount, and B, if so, whether the tenant should be given relief from payment of that debt, and if so, what relief. 
and relief from payment is defined, it means whatever the arbitrators can do. That's something that I'll return to, but they can write off debts, they can give time to pay. Uh, obviously, they can also dismiss an application in appropriate circumstances. Uh, and so that was the first bit that I wanted to talk about. That's what the protected rent is. As I say, is the tenancy adversely affected by coronavirus? That one should be more easily established. Uh, and then the key bit is going to be section five, which is going to limit where that protected period applies. And there are the complicated provisions for determining that that I referred to. I'll come to the second of the three things I said I wanted to talk about, and that will be what can actually be done with these debts now that we've established their scope. Uh, there are restrictions in the Act, as I said, primarily, although not exclusively, relating to landlords, as to A, the actual enforcement of these debts as debts, and B, insolvency action. I'll talk about each of them. I'll talk about the latter a bit more briefly, starting with Section 23 of the Act. Now, Section 23 of the Act contains its headed temporary moratorium on enforcement of protected rent debts. Subsection 1 gives effect to Schedule 2. Schedule 2 is where the provisions are contained that we'll be concerned with. We don't need to go through the summary in Section 23 of what's included because I'll be talking through the actual paragraphs. Subsection 2 defines the moratorium period. Now, the moratorium period begins on the day the Act is passed. That was the 24th of March 2022, and it ends at sub 2b, one where the matter of relief from payment of the protected rent debt is not referred to arbitration within the period of six months beginning with that day, with the last day of that period, namely six months from 24th of March, if no reference is made, or two, where there is a reference to arbitration when the arbitration finishes. So that should seem straightforward enough. Subsection 3 provides provision for extension of the moratorium agreement, and it refers to Section 24, which also makes such provision. Essentially, there could be an extension. It's, the possibility is within the Act of this period. This will obviously have implications for any landlord. Presumably, it would be a landlord seeking to run out the clock and wait for the six months to pass. There may be implications on that if there's an extension. Obviously not clear if there will be. Section 25 uh, deals with restrictions on insolvency arrangements. Uh, and essentially during the relevant period, there can't be proposals for a CVA or an IVA or a compromise or arrangement under Section 896 or 901C of the Companies Act 2006, uh, in each case in relation to the whole or part of the relevant debt. And the relevant period is defined. Uh, essentially, it begins when an arbitrator is appointed. So th these things can't be done during the period of the arbitration. Doesn't apply before according to subsection 3, which says the relevant period begins with the appointment of the arbitrator. So that's that, and we get to section 27, which is the more general insolvency 
provision, and it relates in particular to winding up petitions and bankruptcy orders, uh, bankruptcy petitions. I'll come to those. So I, I'm going to talk about Schedule 2 first, which is given effect, as I said, by Section 23, and we'll start with Paragraph 2. Simply, during the moratorium period, the landlord may not make a debt claim to enforce the protected debt. There's a definition of debt claim. It means exactly what you think it would mean. That is straightforward enough. Doesn't specifically say that it covers guarantors. Probably does, uh, because the next paragraph also does, and it refers generally to debt claims without limitation on who, it, who the claim would be made against. It simply says the landlord may not make a debt claim to enforce the protected debt. So that seems to be the case, but not made explicit within the section. We come to paragraph three, and paragraph three is a retrospective provision. And what it does is it applies to proceedings as is made clear in subparagraph one. A debt claim which is made on or after 10th November 2021, but before the day on which the act is passed. And it has certain consequences in relation to those claims. It's to be noted that, that paragraph 3.1a, namely the requirement that the claim was made on or after 10th November 2021, is required for the rest of the paragraph to have effect. And so claims made before 10th November 2021, the schedule should not affect them. Uh, they're outside of the scope of this retrospective provision. Now, there, there are basically two provisions within, sub, within paragraph three. The first is if there are ongoing proceedings, and this is covered by subsections two and three. If there are ongoing proceedings, either party can apply to the court for a stay. The court must grant it. Uh, that's, of course, if it's issued on or after 10th November. The other type of consequence that can follow is if judgment has been given during that period uh, on a claim issued on or after 10th November. And if judgment has been given, basically what it says at subsection 5 is A, uh, it can still be referred to arbitration, notwithstanding that judgment's been given. B, you can't enforce the judgment debt. C, if relief is granted by an arbitrator or if it's agreed by the parties, the judgment is taken to have been varied, the word used is altered, in accordance with the terms of that award or agreement. And there are provisions for court officers to take certain actions in that case. But the consequence here is, if you already have a judgment as a landlord, in these circumstances, can't necessarily rely on it, at least so far as the Act says and as I just mentioned. Now, for this provision, tenant specifically does include a guarantor, anyone who's given an indemnity, and also any former tenant who's liable for the payment of rent under a business tenancy. Uh, that's under subparagraph 8, so that's to be kept in mind also. So those are the retrospective provisions. So moving on from paragraph 3, which I just talked about, paragraph 4 of Schedule 2 deals with commercial rent arrears recovery. You can't do it in relation to protected debts. Paragraph 5 deals with forfeiture. Paragraph 6 deals with other aspects of forfeiture, namely relief, particularly in the case of superior landlords. Have a look at it if it comes up. 
The next key bits I want to talk about in detail are paragraphs 7 and 8, and these relate to appropriation of payments by landlords. Paragraph 7 is the bit that applies to payments of rent under a business tenancy made during the moratorium period. And it applies only if two conditions are met. Firstly, the tenant has made such a payment at a time when the tenant owes the landlord an unprotected rent debt in addition to the debt. So if they've made a payment at a time when they only owed the protected rent debt, they can't avail themselves of this appropriation provision. B, it only applies in circumstances where the tenant has not exercised the tenant's right to appropriate the payment to any particular rent debt owed to the landlord. And so again, if a tenant has specified that a rent payment is to be uh, appropriated to rents arising during the protected period, this won't help them. Uh, and the actual provision is at subsection 2. Uh, the landlord's right to appropriate the payment must be used to apply the payment to meet the unprotected rent debt before it is applied to the protected rent debt. And so that's all it means in those two circumstances if the tenant during the moratorium period makes a payment of rent, doesn't say what it's for, owes protected and unprotected rent, it's appropriated to the unprotected rent before the protected rent. Uh, and so you can't get away from, as a landlord, the schedule by that means. Paragraph 8 deals with payments made before the moratorium period came into force. Uh, so this paragraph applies in relation to any payment of rent under a business tenancy which was paid during the period mentioned in subparagraph 2 at a time when, as per the previous paragraph, tenant owed the landlord an unprotected rent in addition to the debt and tenant didn't exercise the tenant's right to appropriate. The relevant period, as defined at subparagraph 2, is the period beginning with the day after the last day of the protected period for the debt. So these are payments made outside the protected period and ending with the day before the first day of the moratorium period for the debt. So what we're dealing with here is payments made after the protected period. So if you make a payment as a tenant within the protected period, you can't rely on this appropriation provision. Uh, and ending on, it looks like, 23rd of March, 2022. Uh, and what it says is during the moratorium period for the debt, the landlord's right to appropriate the payment must be used to apply the payment to meet the unprotected rent debt before it is applied to the protected rent debt. So that's where you haven't appropriated it previously as a landlord. If you've already appropriated it as a landlord to a protected rent debt, then by subparagraph 4, that appropriation is ineffective and the payment is to be treated as having been appropriated to the unprotected rent debt first. So this again is a retrospective provision, looks backwards as to how the landlord um, dealt with payments made uh, and alters how those payments were dealt with when they were made within the relevant period referred to. Paragraph 9 deals with tenancy deposits again it's a point made elsewhere in the Act, really, but at paragraph 9.3, if the landlord has lawfully recovered the debt from the tenancy deposit before the beginning of the moratorium period, the tenant is not required to make good any shortfall in the deposit before the end of that period. Of course, we saw earlier that 
uh, that's treated as a protected rent debt by those provisions. So Schedule 3, this will be more brief, and this is the insolvency restrictions, in particular in relation to winding up and bankruptcy petitions. Paragraph 1 puts a prohibition on presenting a winding up petition solely in relation to a protected rent debt. Uh, the provisions are there, they can be seen, I don't need to read them all out. Bankruptcy petitions on the basis of a protected rent debt are restricted by paragraph 2. Uh, paragraph 2, incidentally, is retrospective itself to be regarded as having come into force on 10th November 2021. The interesting bit of Schedule 3 is Paragraph 3. And the effect of Paragraph 3 is that if a bankruptcy order has already been made on the basis of a protected debt, uh, it can be treated as not having been made. Uh, and so, at subparagraph 1, the paragraph applies where the court makes a bankruptcy order. The order was made on or after 10th November. Again, this is the end. Uh, this is the earliest you can look back, as with previous provisions. And the order was not one which the court would have made had this schedule been in force at the time. So that, those are the specific criteria. Has to have been made on or after 10th November has to be one that wouldn't have been made if the schedule was in force. In these circumstances, subparagraph 2, the court is to be regarded as having had no power to make the order, and accordingly, the order is to be regarded as void. There are consequential provisions in there. I don't need to go through them. The take-home point is bankruptcy orders may not be able to be relied upon in all circumstances if they post-dated 10th November 2021, in much the same way as judgment debts may not avail a landlord by reason of the provisions in Schedule 2. So I'll come to the third of the things I wanted to talk about, and this is how the arbitration process will actually work if it gets to a point where one of the parties wishes to go that way and they haven't managed to reach agreement. There is, in the Commercial Rent Code of Practice following the COVID-19 pandemic, which I referred to before, a flowchart at Annex C, which covers the arbitration process. But I'll have a quick talk through the relevant sections of the Act anyway, starting with Section 9, which defines the period for making a reference to arbitration. Now, this matches up with the moratorium period. It's the six months beginning with the day on which the Act is passed, as you might expect, there are, in addition, uh, further provisions for extension, as again there are for the moratorium period. Um, and that's in subsection 3. So again, this may have consequences for anyone seeking to run out the clock. Again, obviously not clear at the moment what those consequences may be. In other words, if an extension will happen. Section 10 sets out the requirements for making a reference to arbitration. The important bit is subsection 1. Before making a reference to arbitration, A, the tenant or landlord must notify the other party, the respondent, of their intention to make a reference, and B, the respondent may, within 14 days of receipt of the notification under paragraph A, submit a response. A reference to arbitration under subsection 2 must not be made before A, the end of the period of 14 days 
after the day on which the response under subsection 1b is received, or b, if no such response is received, the end of the period of 28 days, beginning with the day on which the notification under subsection 1a is served. So those are the time limits following notification which must be given when a reference may be made by the party giving the notification. There are further restrictions, particularly in the case of CVAs and IVAs and so forth. Those I will leave you to look at if they become relevant. They may in specific cases. Section 11 goes on to deal with proposals for resolving the matter of relief from payment. So we've got to a place where notification has been given, no response is received or agreement hasn't been reached and the relevant time period has passed. Section 11.1, a reference to arbitration must include a formal proposal for resolving the matter of relief from payment of a protected rent debt. Two, the other party to the arbitration may put forward a formal proposal in response within the period of 14 days beginning with the day on which the proposal under subsection 1 is received. Three, a formal proposal under subsection 1 or 2 must be accompanied by supporting evidence. What that supporting evidence must be will become apparent when we have a look at what the arbitrator is going to be considering. Another point to note is, generally speaking, it will probably be a good idea to put in a counter-proposal because, as you'll see, certain consequences follow if you don't. Uh, and in particular, the arbitrator is required to have reference in a way which I'll define to the proposals in making his or her decision. Next bit I'd refer to would be section 13. Uh, this deals with, the heading is arbitration awards available, and what it does is set out where, essentially, the reference must be dismissed. Alternatively, where the arbitrator needs to make a decision according to the principles to which I'll return. So, subsection 2, the first set of circumstances in which the arbitrator must make an award dismissing the reference. A, the parties have by agreement resolved the matter of relief from payment of a protected rent debt before the reference was made. Arbitrator must dismiss. B, the tenancy in question is not a business tenancy, as defined earlier. Arbitrator must dismiss. See, there is no protected rent debt. Arbitrator must dismiss. Nothing surprising in any of those. Simply circumstances where the arbitration process doesn't apply. Subsection 3 deals with the second set of circumstances where there must be a dismissal. And this bit is based on an assessment by the arbitrator of the viability of the tenant's business. And it's where the arbitrator determines that at the time at which the arbitrator is making the assessment, the business is A, not viable, and B, would not become viable if relief were granted. In those cases, the arbitrator must dismiss. In other words, in order for the arbitrator to make an award, to, to get to that position, the tenant must be such that at least if, if relief is granted, they will have a viable business. If they don't, there can be no award. Uh, subsection 4 goes on to say that subsection 5 applies if the arbitrator determines that, again, at the time of the assessment, the business is viable or would become viable. If an award were made, relief were granted. The arbitrator must then resolve the matter from relief of relief from payment 
uh, by considering whether the tenant should receive any relief from payment, and if so, what relief, and 5b, making an award in accordance with section 14. So, again, those are the circumstances where an arbitrator may and may not make an award, must, mustn't have been settled, must be a business tenancy, must be a protected rent debt so that it's applicable. The tenant must also either be viable or must be such that it could, by the grant of relief, become viable. If those latter conditions are met, we go into section 14, which is entitled Arbitrator's Award on the Matter of Relief from Payment. And this is where we come to the point I referred to previously, showing that these proposals can have importance and that it's generally probably going to be a good idea to respond, uh, as, as set out earlier. Section 14.3 says where both parties put forward final proposals, A, if the arbitrator considers that both proposals are consistent with the principles in section 15, the arbitrator must make the award set out in whichever of them the arbitrator considers to be the most consistent. B, if the arbitrator considers that one proposal is consistent with those principles and the other isn't, the arbitrator must make the award set out in the proposal that is consistent. So that can be taken as strong encouragement from the Act to put in a proposal. So long as the arbitrator thinks the proposal is consistent with the relevant principles, he'll have to make an award within one or other of those proposals. Of course, not clear how much scope will be given in terms of the arbitrator's assessment of, convenient, of, of consistency. That will depend on the case and the arbitrator, presumably. And again, subsection 4 of 14, where only the party making the reference to arbitration puts forward a final proposal under section 11, the arbitrator must make the award set out in the proposal if the arbitrator considers that the proposal is consistent with the principles in section 15. Again, motivation to put in a proposal. I'll just move on to section 15. We've been referring to the principles in the previous section set out in section 15. So what are the principles that the arbitrator will apply? Uh, these are set out directly. 15.1, the principles in this section are A, that any award should be aimed at one, preserving in a case falling within section 13.4a, or two, restoring and preserving in a case falling within section 13.4b, the viability of the business of the tenant so far as that is consistent with preserving the landlord's solvency. So to put that without the references, if the tenant is viable, the award will be aimed at preserving that viability. If it would become viable through the grant of relief, the aim will be restoring and preserving that viability. But either of these only takes effect so far as consistent with preserving the landlord's solvency. In other words, if the grant of any relief would render the, the landlord insolvent or would be inconsistent with the preservation of the landlord's solvency, then th that will override. That will be the most important provision. This is actually made clear in the code of practice that I referred to. I'll find the paragraph. Uh, it says, it makes clear that a tenant can't keep the doors of their business open 
if it comes at the expense of the landlord's solvency. That's what the minister said in that code of practice in their foreword. That is what the section does, as I just quoted it. Uh, and the, the, the second part of that is that the tenant should, so far as it is consistent with the principle in paragraph A to do so, be required to meet its obligations as regards the payment of protected rent in full and without delay. So top consideration, landlord solvency, subject to that, tenant's viability. If consistent with tenant's viability, they've got to pay. That's what section 15 essentially says. Now, section 16 goes on to address further the assessment of viability and solvency. It's just some provision as to how they'll do it. The particular bit I wanted to draw attention to was section 16.3, which says in making this assessment, the arbitrator must disregard the possibility of the tenant or the landlord, as the case may be, of A, borrowing money, or B, restructuring its business. So it will never be an answer to a plea of insolvency or unviability to say you could borrow money or you could restructure because Section 16 says it isn't. Uh, there are some final relevant bits that I'll refer to. Section 18 refers to the publication of the award. These awards will be public if the matter goes to arbitration. There are some confidential information that can be omitted, but the award will nonetheless be public. Uh, and there are provisions as to costs in section 19. Section 19.7 says, except as provided by subsection 5 and section 20 sub 6, which essentially refer to the arbitrator's fee, the parties must meet their own legal or other costs. Subsection 8 goes further and says, legal or other costs incurred in connection with arbitration, including arbitration fees, are not recoverable by virtue of any term of the business tenancy concerned. So you can't rely on your contractual indemnity because, again, the Act says you can't, obviously, uh, so far as it falls within that wording and the section. There is reference to guidance, but that's pretty much it. The Act then goes on to the moratorium, which we've referred to. That's been my overview of the third thing I wanted to look at, which was the actual process of arbitration. If you get there, we've looked firstly at what debts are included in this act, secondly what can be done with them in terms of moratorium provisions and the insolvency restrictions, and finally what the arbitration will actually entail in outline. Uh, I hope that's been useful. Obviously more detailed arguments are going to arise. In any such case we're of course available to advise. Uh, thank you for listening.